In the last couple of weeks, we've begun Epiphany. We had Epiphany. We're now back into kind of a green season, which uh, focuses on themes from Epiphany about manifestation and making manifest the promises of God. Uh, but it's also a, green, a little green season sort of interlude before Lent. And so it's a time also to think about the nature of discipleship. Because the Green Sundays, the big long period in the church's year, uh, really focuses in the readings on the nature, the cost, and the ways and the means of Christian discipleship. So in this emphasis, after the baptism of Christ, this Sunday, I think, could be said to be about vocation. I made a decision not to preach on 1 Corinthians and all that about fornication. It isn't because I'm in favor of fornication. It's just that it takes too much time to explain all that. And sometime we're going to have to do it because Paul unfortunately gets it in the neck for sounding kind of, oh no, is he going to do this? It may describe to you also uh, what, a what a handful the Corinthian congregation was in terms of pastoral responsibility. I have said to you that the Corinthian congregation it was a church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament. So all of the church growth and all of the church conflict managers who are alive today and have written a huge number of books on how to do this can use the Corinthian congregation as a biblical model for what it is that needs to be done about practicing the non-anxious presence. And also understanding how we live together with plural views. And that we, we love one another in the midst of that plurality. That that's an important gospel value. And maybe Paul was trying to say something about that there, although it may be for many of us oblique. So I w I'm not going to preach actually on the readings proper much. Uh, the call of Samuel is clearly a vocational thing, and so is Nathaniel's call. So here's what I am going to talk about. When Jesus was baptized in this cycle, cycle B, the version that we read is from Mark's gospel. And unique in the gospels, uh, in the account of Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven, the God's affirmation that takes place at Jesus' baptism, God's affirmation is only heard and experienced by Jesus himself as an inner experience. It's an internal thing. So in some ways it seems tailor-made for our own age because we're focused on our interior states or if we seek to connect the dots and want to know whether something spiritually works, we usually think about it in subjective terms. It's harder for us to accept sort of the general way that you do things uh, from the view that there are things perhaps that are true whether we believe them or not. So it's easier for most people to say, I have to test this myself. Also, spiritual uh, uh, maturity is often equated with self-fulfillment in our culture. And you know there's nothing wrong with self-fulfillment, but maybe there's some other things that are uh, going on in the world that uh, are bigger than that too. And it may be the uh, obligation of the Christian preacher to say that to, to the preacher himself or herself and to everybody else. 
Jesus has this experience and as the result of it he now begins to understand his vocation in death. And I did a little research this week and vocation comes from a Latin word vocare which means to call to summon or to invite so I like them all. Most of the time we think about vocation and speak of vocation, our own vocation, as uh, our calling. You know, this is what I think uh, I'm meant to do. If you're somebody who is uh, desirous of, of speaking it in this way, you would say that this is what I believe God wants me to do. This is what I believe sort of internally uh, is how I, I should order myself and orient myself in, in my life. And remember what I said to you last week, this is very important. The spiritual life, the intellectual life, and the emotional life are one thing. They're not separate. We talk about them separately because that's how we talk about things in, with some precision. But people who have studied the brain recently have said to us that our thinking processes and our emotional processes are simultaneous. They occur at the same time. So there isn't such a thing as the mental thinking and the feeling. It's one thing. So when we understand that, maybe making sense out of our spiritual condition has something to do with our intellectual and emotional states. And when we think about being summoned, invited, or called by God, those are all of the things that need to be taken into account as we ponder the nature of our vocation. Now, through Christian history, the way vocation has been understood has been variable. And by the time we get to the Middle Ages, certainly calling or vocation was exclusively in Christianity referred to as uh, being ordained or being called by God to be a member of a religious community, or, you know, bishop, priest, or deacon, or something like that. And in fact, in Elizabethan England, when our tradition was formed, if you were to say to, say, St. Thomas More, uh, spirituality, he would think of the spirituality as all of the trappings of the church. It's property, it's clergy, all of the things about it, was the spirituality that sort of existed within the kingdom, you know, as part of that. So we now think of spirituality as kind of an orientation, the way in which we return our, our, ourselves and our thanks to God, and that connects to a certainly a more primitive understanding of vocation that connects to our baptism. And I'm going to say something about that in a minute. So when we think about vocation and calling, that was what happened. Then we have the Protestant Reformation in the West. So Luther and Calvin begin to say, you know, the way we ought to think about vocation is that every Christian person is called to express the values of the gospel in everyday life. And so this calling is for everyone. I might add, this is maybe a little too complex, but as time went on, they began to impose from the Protestant side a level of purity 
on ordinary everyday conduct that put in the everyday context what somebody who would decide to enter a monastery would live. You get what I'm saying? So the religious life, which some people are called to, where there may be some extraordinary and heroic ways of living that are not better, just different, are now being translated as being the way everybody ought to live in out there, you know, outside the monastery walls. Uh, that began to become problematic for many, as it should have. <laughs> And then we began to move in the West to some renewal movements, both in Protestantism and in the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Second Vatican Council, they began to say, you know, we need to think about vocation and calling uh, in a different way. I believe personally, and this is a commercial message, that in Anglicanism, when it began, we were out front on this and began to see that there needed to be struck a balance between the personal and the corporate understanding of vocation and that we didn't totally let go of the, the spiritual disciplines and, and things that were part of the, of the model out of which the Reformation emerged. But also we began to think this, God ratifies all good choices and works all of them together for the kingdom. So when you think about your calling whether it be spiritual or whatever you think that it is, it is deeply spiritual. And God ratifies that as part of a vocation that seeks to know God's will and purpose for you and seeks to live into the idea that you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. And epiphany and manifestation have to do with how you do that. So the tendency always to think in heroic terms or to bite off more than you can chew with regard to what it is you think you need to be to be a religious person needs to be tempered by the fact that you can, in the ordinary and commonplace, seek and know God's purposes for you and be an instrument of transparency and reflection of God's grace and love. So the vocational work that you do has something to do with that. Nancy, my dear wife, said something many years ago to me when I first met her. And she said she, she was a very good fine artist in high school. And she got a scholarship. I'm she may be embarrassed by this, but she got a paid scholarship to the Pratt Institute. And... Uh, uh, didn't go, but that's a, there's a story there. <laughs> but she said to me one day, because she's a graphic designer, she said, I made up my mind when I decided to do graphic design that I wasn't going to think about what I was doing as second best. You know, one down from fine art. <laughs> right? And I've always remembered that because it has something to do with how we think about our vocation and our calling. And if you beat yourself with the idea that that is the case, it's a problem. The church has wounded itself on, uh, with an overweening clericalism, for example, where all of uh, we religious professionals get are, are somehow here and have behaved like it <laughs> more than we ought to have. 
for darn sure and misunderstood completely the true Christian vocation which is rooted in the baptismal covenant. What happened in our tradition when we renewed our liturgy was that we recovered the idea of the baptismal covenant and we're one of the churches in the worldwide Anglican communion that has a baptismal covenant in its liturgy. I might add that this is a source of difficulty and controversy in the Anglican communion because those churches that have a, uh, a view of baptism that is kind of a cosmic spot remover uh, have difficulty with, with people who say we need to understand the reciprocal nature of what it is that's taking place here. And isn't it true in your vocation that when you think about it, there's some element of reciprocity. There's your own idealism and your own yearning coming up against uh, the reality of whatever vocation it is, both in the positive sense that it challenges you to do better and to be more accomplished at it, but you also have to work through the disillusionments that occur with regard to embracing a vocation where you realize that all people in leadership sooner or later turn out to have feet of clay. And so how do you move forward in some way and understand that, you know, this is all the way it works and you still count and you have to be part of this in what you do and God is calling us to do this. Sometimes it's going to be like Samuel. <coughs> Samuel is going to be called from the time he was a little boy. He will have this vocational tug and he's going to get to a place where, to put it in contemporary terms, he's going to have to speak truth to power. And Eli and his sons are going to get it in the neck because of their bad behavior. Eli, by his passive allowing of his sons to behave in a corrupt fashion at the shrine. And when this happens, they're punished in the Old Testament for this. And Samuel tells them, it says, you know, this is what God's going to do. And there's going to be trouble and plenty of it. It's to Eli's credit that he realizes the necessity of taking responsibility but his sons do not. And so part of our vocational life may involve that kind of thing. I always wonder what it would feel like to be a whistleblower. <laughs> Nancy watched in, on PBS the other night a, a, a documentary uh, on, the, on the, the, the thing that the movie Valkyrie is based on that's just come out, you know, the assassination of Hitler or the attempted assassination and for years after this in Germany all the survivors of that particular plot were looked down upon by the German people as betrayers only until recently has it been that they have realized that they were heroes and that what they did was something that was produced by an enormous internal moral struggle that came to realize that this was what had to be done. Now think about it, you know. That's how we often think about somebody who speaks the truth to power, don't we? It's not easy. So that's one of the harder vocations. 
Nathaniel is going to be in a situation where he now is just love struck with Jesus. And he's going to have to live uh, through a situation where there's a lot going to go on before uh, this is all over. And so his vocation is going to be tempered by his idealism, right? And, his, and Jesus cautions him even in today's gospel about that, you know. He's going to see even greater things, but there's going to be some other stuff that's going to attach to this that won't be pleasant. So this week, think about your vocation. Think about your calling. Think about the summons. And think about the invitation. See if you can connect to those aspects of your vocation that you experienced initially that made you do what you're doing. And see if you can even in a slight way remember that enthusiasm and that that commitment and that sense of conversion uh, that caused you to do it. And remember that you are an instrument of the purposes of God in whatever vocation you choose. And that in big and small ways, you always make a difference. Amen. 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 Okay, Kathy.